This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gesine Dear Enemy by Jean Webster Part 3 Superintendent John Greer Home, March 6th Dear Judy, I don't know yet whether the children are going to love me or not, but they do love my dog. No creature so popular as Singapore ever entered these gates. Every afternoon three boys who have been perfect in deportment are allowed to brush and comb him, while three other good boys may serve him with food and drink. But every Saturday morning the climax of the week is reached, when three superlatively good boys give him a nice lathery bath, with hot water and flea-soap. The privilege of serving as Singapore's valet is going to be the only incentive I shall need for maintaining discipline. But isn't it pathetically unnatural for these youngsters to be living in the country and never owning a pet? Especially when they, of all children, do so need something to love. I am going to manage pets for them somehow, if I have to spend our new endowment for a menagerie. Could you bring back some baby alligators and a pelican? Anything alive will be gratefully received. This should by rights be my first trustee's day. I am deeply grateful to Jervis for arranging a simple business meeting in New York, as we are not yet on dress parade up here, but we are hoping by the first Wednesday in April to have something visible to show. If all of the doctor's ideas, and a few of my own, get themselves materialized, our trustees will open their eyes a bit when we show them about. I have just made out a chart for next week's meals, and posted it in the kitchen, in the sight of an aggrieved cook. Variety is a word hitherto not found in the lexicon of the J.G.H. You would never dream all of the delightful surprises we are going to have. Brown bread, corn pone, graham muffins, samp, rice pudding with lots of raisins, thick vegetable soup, macaroni Italian fashion, polenta cakes with molasses, apple dumplings, gingerbread, oh, an endless list. After our biggest girls have assisted in the manufacture of such appetizing dainties, they will almost be capable of keeping future husbands in love with them. Oh, dear me, here I am bubbling these silly nothings when I have some real news up my sleeve. We have a new worker, a gem of a worker. Do you remember Betsy Kindred, 1910? She led the Glee Club and was president of dramatics. I remember her perfectly. She always had lovely clothes. Well, if you please, she lives only twelve miles from here. I ran across her by chance yesterday morning, as she was motoring through the village, or rather she just escaped running across me. I never spoke to her in my life, but we greeted each other like the oldest friends. It pays to have conspicuous hair. She recognized me instantly. I hopped upon the running board of her car and said, Betsy Kindred, 1910, you've got to come back to my orphan asylum and help me catalogue my orphans. And it astonished her so that she came. She's to be here four or five days a week as temporary secretary. And somehow I must manage to keep her permanently. She's the most useful person I ever saw. I am hoping that orphans will become such a habit with her that she won't be able to give them up. I think she might stay if we pay her a big enough salary. She likes to be independent of her family, as do all of us in these degenerate times. 
In my growing zeal for cataloguing people, I should like to get our doctor tabulated. If Jervis knows any gossip about him, write it to me, please. The worse, the better. He called yesterday to lance a felon on Sammy Spears' thumb, then ascended to my electric blue parlour to give instructions as to the dressing of thumbs. The duties of a superintendent are manifold. It was just tea-time, so I casually asked him to stay, and he did. Not for the pleasure of my society, no, indeed, but because Jane appeared at the moment with a plate of toasted muffins. He hadn't had any luncheon, it seems, and dinner was a long way ahead. Between muffins he ate the whole plateful. He saw fit to interrogate me as to my preparedness for this position. Had I studied biology in college? How far had I gone in chemistry? What did I know of sociology? Had I visited that model institution at Hastings? To all of which I responded affably and openly. Then I permitted myself a question or two. Just what sort of youthful training had been required to produce such a model of logic, accuracy, dignity, and common sense as I saw sitting before me? Through persistent prodding I elicited a few forlorn facts, but all quite respectable. You'd think from his reticence there'd been a hanging in the family. The Macrae pair was born in Scotland, and came to the States to occupy a chair at Johns Hopkins. Son Robin was shipped back to Old Ricky for his education. His grandmother was MacLachlan of Strathlachlan. I'm sure she sounds respectable, and his vacations were spent in the highlands a-chasing the deer. So much I could gather, so much, and no more. Tell me I beg some gossip about my enemy, something scandalous by preference. Why, if he is such an awfully efficient person, does he bury himself in this remote locality? You would think an up-and-coming scientific man would want a hospital at one elbow and a morgue at the other. Are you sure that he didn't commit a crime and isn't hiding from the law? I seem to have covered a lot of paper without telling you much. Vive la bagatelle! Yours as usual, Sally. P.S. I am relieved on one point. Dr. McRae does not pick out his own clothes. He leaves all such unessential trifles to his housekeeper, Mrs. Maggie McGurk. Again and irrevocably, good-bye. The John Greer Home, Wednesday. Dear Gordon, your roses and your letter cheered me for an entire morning, and it's the first time I've approached cheerfulness since the 14th February, when I waved good-bye to Worcester. Words can't tell you how monotonously oppressive the daily round of institution life gets to be. The only glimmer in the whole dull affair is the fact that Betsy Kindred spends four days a week with us. Betsy and I were in college together, and we do occasionally find something funny to laugh about. Yesterday we were having tea in my hideous parlour, when we suddenly determined to revolt against so much unnecessary ugliness. We called in six sturdy and destructive orphans, a stepladder and a bucket of hot water, and in two hours had every vestige of that tapestry paper off these walls. You can't imagine what fun it is ripping paper off walls. Two paper hangers are at work this morning, hanging the best that our village affords, while a German upholsterer is on his knees measuring my chairs for chintz slip covers that will hide every inch of their plush upholstery. Please don't get nervous. This doesn't mean that I'm preparing to spend my life in the asylum. It means only that I'm preparing a cheerful welcome for my successor.
I haven't dared tell Judy how dismal I find it, because I don't want to cloud Florida, but when she returns to New York she will find my official resignation waiting to meet her in the front hall. I would write you a long letter in grateful payment for seven pages, but two of my little dears are holding a fight under the window. I dash to separate them. Yours as ever, S. McBee The John Greer Home, March 8th My dear Judy, I myself have bestowed a little present upon the John Greer Home, the refurnishing of the superintendent's private parlour. I saw the first night here that neither I nor any future occupant could be happy with Mrs. Lippitt's electric plush. You see, I am planning to make my successor contented and willing to stay. Betsy Kindred assisted in the rehabilitation of the Lippitt's Chamber of Horrors, and between us we have created a symphony in dull blue and gold. Really and truly, it's one of the loveliest rooms you've ever seen. The sight of it will be an artistic education to any orphan. New paper on the wall, new rugs on the floor, my own prized Persians, expressed from Worcester by an expostulating family. New casement curtains at my three windows, revealing a wide and charming view, hitherto hidden by Nottingham lace. A new big table. Some lamps and books and a picture or so, and a real open fire. She had closed the fireplace because it let in air. I never realized what a difference artistic surroundings make in the peace of one's soul. I sat last night and watched my fire throw nice highlights on my new old fender, and purred with contentment. And I assure you, it's the first purr that has come from this cat since she entered the gates of the John Greer home. But the refurbishing of the superintendent's parlour is the slightest of our needs. The children's private apartments demand so much basic attention that I can't decide where to begin. That dark north playroom is a shocking scandal, but no more shocking than our hideous dining-room, or our unventilated dormitories, or our tubless lavatories. If the institution is very saving, do you think it can ever afford to burn down this smelly old original building and put up instead some nice ventilated modern cottages? I cannot contemplate that wonderful institution at Hastings without being filled with envy. It would be some fun to run an asylum if you had a plant like that to work with. But anyway, when you get back to New York, and are ready to consult the architect about remodelling, please apply to me for suggestions. Among other little details, I want two hundred feet of sleeping porch running along the outside of our dormitories. You see, it's this way. Our physical examination reveals the fact that about half of our children are anemic. 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 Mercy, what a word. And a lot of them have tubercular ancestors, and more have alcoholic. Their first need is oxygen rather than education. And if the sickly ones need it, why shouldn't it be good for the well ones? I should like to have every child, winter and summer, sleeping in the open air, but I know that if I let fall such a bomb on the board of trustees, the whole body would explode. Speaking of trustees, I have met up with the Honourable Cyrus Wyckoff, and I really believe that I dislike him more than Dr. Robin McRae, or the kindergarten teacher, or the cook. I seem to have a genius for discovering enemies. Mr. Wyckoff called on Wednesday last to look over the new superintendent. Having lowered himself into my most comfortable armchair, he proceeded to spend the day. 
He asked my father's business, and whether or not he was well-to-do. I told him that my father manufactured overalls, and that even in these hard times the demand for overalls was pretty steady. He seemed relieved. He approves of the utilitarian aspect of overalls. He had been afraid that I had come from the family of a minister or professor or writer. A lot of high thinking and no common sense. Cyrus believes in common sense. And what had been my training for this position? That, as you know, is a slightly embarrassing question. But I produced my college education and a few lectures at the School of Philanthropy, also a short residence in the college settlement. I didn't tell him that all I had done there was to paint the back hall and stairs. Then I submitted some social work among my father's employees and a few friendly visits to the home for female inebriates, to all of which he grunted. I added that I had lately made a study of the care of dependent children and casually mentioned my seventeen institutions. He grunted again and said he didn't take much stock in this new-fangled scientific charity. At this point Jane entered with a box of roses from the florists. That blessed Gordon Hallock sends me roses twice a week to brighten the rigours of institution life. Our trustee began an indignant investigation. He wished to know where I got these flowers, and was visibly relieved when he learned that I had not spent the institution's money for them. He next wished to know who Jane might be. I had foreseen that question and decided to brazen it out. "'My maid,' said I. "'You what?' he bellowed, quite red in the face. "'My maid. What is she doing here?' I amiably went into details. "'She mends my clothes, blacks my boots, keeps my bureau drawers in order, washes my hair.' I really thought the man would choke, so I charitably added that I paid her wages out of my own private income, and paid five dollars and fifty cents a week to the institution for her board, and that, though she was big, she didn't eat much.' He allowed that I might make use of one of the orphans for all legitimate service. I explained, still polite but growing bored, that Jane had been in my service for many years and was indispensable. He finally took himself off, after telling me that he, for one, had never found any fault with Mrs. Lippitt. She was a common-sense Christian woman, without many fancy ideas, but with plenty of good solid work in her. He hoped that I would be wise enough to model my policy upon hers. And what, my dear Judy, do you think of that? The doctor dropped in a few minutes later, and I repeated the Honourable Cyrus's conversation in detail. For the first time in the history of our intercourse, the doctor and I agreed. Mrs. Lippitt, indeed, he growled. The blethering old gomeral. May the Lord send him mere sense. When our doctor really becomes aroused, he drops into scotch. My latest pet name for him, behind his back, is Sandy. Sadie Kate is sitting on the floor as I write, untangling sewing silks and winding them neatly for Jane, who is becoming quite attached to the little imp. "'I am writing to your Aunt Judy,' say I to Sadie Kate. "'What message shall I send from you?' "'I never heard of no Aunt Judy.' She is the aunt of every good little girl in this school. "'Tell her to come and visit me and bring some candy,' says Sadie Kate. "'I say so, too.' "'My love to the President, Sally.'" End of Part 3 Recorded by Gesine in October 2007